And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2 for this morning's sermon text. I would like to say a great thanks to uh, all of you all for inviting me out here. Uh, it is my first time to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, the weather is much nicer than it is out in Chicago and even far nicer than it is in Florida during this time of the year. Um, as uh, being a Florida boy born and raised, um, I am probably one of the few people who hate the heat. Um, I remember as a kid, one of my favorite things to do was going on vacation, of course, you know, getting to go to the theme parks, of course, but more important than that was being able to go to the hotel and crank the, uh, the window unit AC down as cold as I possibly uh, could. I remember, you know, once I, I was uh, on a road trip with a, with a friend of mine and we, we ended up staying in the middle of West Texas, which is about as hot as it could possibly get on the face of this earth. I walked into a hotel, we were going to go into our hotel room, looking forward to cranking down the AC, and I, I opened up the door, and there, standing on the threshold, barring my entrance to the gates of paradise, of course, was a massive uh, tarantula, and I don't know if you've ever seen those, but I, I'm not the biggest fan of spiders, uh, and uh, I've kind of frozen my tracks, and uh, my buddy Chris uh, Simons was not as scared as them, uh, of them as, as I was, uh, he had kind of the Doc Martin boots, kind of camouflaged pants tucked into the boots, and he goes, and he, he uh, uh, smashes the fell beast underfoot, thinking uh, for a moment that my, um, uh, I'd been delivered, I uh, was quickly changed to even a greater dread when I realized that that tarantula was in fact a mama tarantula, and uh, as, he, as he splattered uh, the beast uh, out from under the mama tarantula came dozens, if not hundreds of other baby tarantulas in every uh, direction. I think it was the first and last time I've ever run in my entire life. <laughs> I think it does raise an important question. What frightens you? Might not be the creepy crawlies. You might be more courageous than I am when it comes to that. But it might be close spaces. Might be a crippling loneliness. Might be your child's future. Might be uh, the uncertainties of a career in the midst of a pandemic. Might be a cancerous doctor's report. Might be COVID. I'd like us to ask ourselves. What's my biggest fear? Have you thought about it? I also want you to ask yourself why. Why is it your biggest fear? I think lurking underneath so many of our fears, not all of our fears, but so many of them, is the fear of death. Whatever its manifestation, it can be crippling, it can be asphyxiating. But I come this morning bearing good news for you. As we look at this passage here this morning, Christ addresses his frightened friends to those plagued by the fear of death. And so with that in mind, I'd like us to give our attention to the reading of God's word, and then we will pray. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in blood and in flesh, Christ himself likewise partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil, and to deliver all those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. 
Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your infallible and inerrant word given to comfort, to correct, and to convict us in all of our sins and all of our anxieties. As you've come to bring comfort to us, we ask that your word this morning would comfort frightened friends as we seek to live through this world, passing in it as strangers and pilgrims. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's three things I'd like us to consider this morning as we ask the question, what type of comfort does Christ come to bring in the midst of fear? We could simply take it in three rapid points, verses 14, 15, and 16. So we consider Christ as, first of all, the destroyer. I kind of sound odd to the ears as we consider Christ as the destroyer in the comfort he brings. We ask ourselves, what is meant by that? I hope you will understand in the coming moments. Verse 15, we'll consider Christ as our defender. And then in verse, 15, uh, verse 16, we'll consider Christ as our helper. So Christ comes to bring comfort in three ways. It's the destroyer, namely the destroyer of death, our defender, and our helper. I think it's always difficult to preach a one-off uh, when you go to visit various churches, because you kind of get into a rhythm of things as you preach uh, through a particular book of the Bible, and especially as you're in uh, not the beginning of a book here, but particularly the second or third chapter of Hebrews. And when you deal with a book as rich as Hebrews, it's, it's, it's kind of like getting uh, a kind of drop behind enemy lines if you want to start anywhere other than uh, chapter 1, verse 1. But here we go. This is what we're going to do anyway. I think if we could summarize the book of Hebrews, in which fact we should recognize that Hebrews is likely a written sermon. Perhaps the only example we have of the standard written sermon you'd see uh, in, a, in a church setting in the New Testament it makes you realize how maybe shallow our own theology is if this is just one sermon and it takes you know, roughly 40, 50 sermons just to get through the book of Hebrews. It kind of shows where we are uh, as a people here in the 21st century, but it also shows us how deep and rich God's word really is. But if we could summarize the book of Hebrews in three little words, it's simply this, that Christ is better. Christ is supreme over all things. You see this particularly in chapter 1. He's supreme over the prophets. In chapter 2, the focus now shifts to that of the angels, that he, Christ reigns supreme over them. And then, of course, when we uh, eventually make it to chapter 3, we find that Christ is greater than even Moses himself, who in the first century was considered among Jews to be a greater figure than even the angels. We see the supremacy of Christ in all things, but the point that is driven home here in the opening chapters of Hebrews is that because Christ is better, therefore he must be heard. And as we are told of the kingship of Christ, that he reigns over all, he has subdued all things over, under his feet, even though we do not yet see it. As we walk the walk in the life and pilgrimage of faith, it becomes very difficult to believe the main point of Hebrews. What do you mean that Christ reigns? That Christ has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that he is indeed in control over all things. Just watch the news over the past week, and we can feel the pool and the doubts begin to emerge. You, you know, seen on social media and the news this week, even the, the explosion in Beirut. How can we see that? How can we live in the midst of all this fear and anxiety, uh, the political turmoil, and of course, the fears over uh, the coronavirus and 
see all the death that reigns around us. And we say, well, this is really a world where death seems to reign, and how can we ever say with a straight face that Christ reigns when death really seems to have the upper hand in all of it? In a world that's subject to sickness, to disease, to war, to famine, to death, why can the church ever confess that Christ reigns? Was Karl Marx really right when he said that religion is the opiate of the masses? Are we just kidding ourselves, just trying to make it through another day with this confession? Not only that, but this church's confession seems cruel, at least on the surface. I remember hearing a number of years ago a particular musician who mourned the death of a close friend of his. Lyrics go something like this, I've been thinking about how nothing can escape the governing of God. Still somehow that just doesn't comfort me tonight. That musician, of course, has since abandoned and repudiated the faith. I think it's an important question. It's a question that we have so many friends asking in the midst of this pandemic. We have neighbors asking us in the midst of the problem of suffering and evil. Perhaps you find yourself asking that and you're embarrassed by the fact that you have these doubts popping up. Well, again, I think we have good news before us because I want you to recognize this is, in fact, an important question. More importantly, this is a question that the New Testament does not sidestep. This is actually central to what we see in the Bible, that God has come to answer the problem of evil. Some try to soft-pedal it. I remember going to any number of funerals as a kid and hearing uh, the particular preacher, a minister, giving the funeral oration, saying something like this, that death is to be greeted as something as an old friend. I don't think there could be a more unbiblical statement that I've heard in recent years from the pulpit. Just read the New Testament. Death is not a friend. Paul refers to it as the, as the great enemy, the last enemy to be defeated. You think of uh, John chapter 11 when Jesus approaches Lazarus' tomb. David Warfield has a, it's a wonderful essay on this and the emotional life of our Lord. Jesus comes to approach the tomb of Lazarus. He weeps. But then it says that Jesus grows angry. And yet John doesn't specify the object of his anger as being an unbelieving crowd. It's not even the Pharisees this time that become the object of Christ's anger. Rather, it is, in fact, the reality of death itself. Death is the great evil. And yet, we see here that for all of its monstrosities, where death is almost personified, as it were, in the Bible, and yet for all of its monstrosities, the Bible also describes and depicts death as just the henchman, the right-hand man to Satan, as it were. He's the, the, the Vader to Satan's Palpatine, right? He's the, uh, the Sauron to Morgoth. He is the pinky to the brain, and Satan, we find, is a figure far more nefarious, one who brandishes death as a sword, brandishes it, wields it against the human race, to which every man, woman, child has fallen prey to, save but a few. We see, even in the opening chapters of Genesis chapter 3, that the means by which death gains its power over this created order is through the subterfuge of Satan where Satan initiates through deceptive means man's rebellion against his maker. 
Because Adam had mutinied against his Creator, death now, as Romans 5 tells us, reigns as the grisly overlord over all of creation. It is, in fact, the curse that is poured out over the whole earth. The wages and payment of sin is, in fact, what? It is death. But here in the Gospel, we find that God did not leave us without comfort. Rather, as we had seen, as we all know the story in Genesis chapter 3, God had promised that the son of the woman would crush the serpent underfoot, and with it, death itself would be undone. But I want you to notice that embedded promise in Genesis chapter 3. It would come through what? It would come through the son, the seed of the woman. And so what we see here in these opening verses of the passage before us is that the author of Hebrews is situating the reality of the incarnation, the fact that God had himself become man. He situates it within the broader contours of the history of redemption. The promises that God had given to put death to death. So we are told here that Christ has come, that the Son of God, that's why we had that confession of faith read together this morning, that the Son of God has come to put death to death by His very death. The Christ crucified and raised, as Peter proclaims in the book of Acts, shall never die again. Death shall not have dominion over him any longer. If we can think of the resurrection of Christ, the first coming of Christ, and the return of Christ, as that in Christ's first coming, he has come to defang death. As 1 Corinthians tells us, O death, where's your sting? Where are your teeth? O death. So Christ has done it at his first coming. And then it is second, the great hope that we, for which we all here still long for and await, is that Christ's second return, he will take death, which has been defanged, and will put it to death once and for all. Think of the New Testament, where the number of times where Jesus raises the dead, in nearly every instance, what is Jesus' repeated assurance to the people who are mourning the death of a loved one? Don't cry. Peace. The little child is not dead, but only what? Sleeping. The whole point is not that death is not a big deal. The point is that Christ is so victorious that in light of the victory of Christ, death is now seen to be nothing more than sleep for the people of God. Death is still a great evil, but it is an evil which has begun to be unraveled through the resurrection of our Savior. In other words, Christ should be seen according to the lens of the New Testament as the ultimate grave robber, where he's come to plunder not a loot, but a people, to bring them back from death to life. We begin to see that even more fully here in verse 15, as Christ is seen not only as the destroyer of death, but also as the defender of his people. So the Son of God was made like us in every way, sin-accepting, as Hebrews 4 tells us, as he, as he took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul to shatter Satan's death grip. It's not the only reason why Christ came, not only to destroy Satan, but also, as you see here in verse 15, to deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
It's kind of the central plot point to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? Not the best uh, Indiana Jones movie by far, but of course, easily not the worst. We will never speak of the fourth movie ever again. There's all the, the, the children in the Indian village who have been kidnapped and enslaved by the sinister Mullah Ram to work the mines. And Indiana Jones is, is kind of is, is asked to come deliver the children. What, what would happen if in the movie Indiana Jones shows up and he killed Mullah Ram and then he just left? Wouldn't be much good news. Yeah, he defeated the bad guy, of course. But what's still left to be done? The children still had to be liberated from the mines. It's kind of the apex and pinnacle of the plot uh, to that story. I hate to you know, ruin the plot to you, but it's been out for about 30 years, so I feel like I'm free to do it. Bruce Willis is also a ghost in another movie. Uh, uh, I'm just going to hear ruin movies for you left and right. The problem is, it's not just the fact that the bad guy needs to be defeated. Those enslaved need to be delivered. And that's the second thing that we see here. That's the point given here in verse 15. Christ has not only come to shatter Satan's power, but also to liberate those who had been enslaved to him. Notice the chains of our enslavement mentioned here in verse 15. How has the human race been enslaved? It's through the fear of death. So we return to the question, what's so scary about large crowds? What's so scary about spiders, closed spaces, COVID? I think for many of us, the perceived threat lurking under so many of our fears, of our fears again, not all of our fears, but so many of them is this, it's the fear of death. But this very thing that is confronting me is the very thing that will lead to my own personal existential destruction. And what do we do in the face of death? I'll tell you what everybody does out in Chicago. We do anything we can to avoid thinking about it. Think what happens when somebody goes through a midlife crisis. What do they do? Buy a sports car and a can of Rogaine. Abandon a family for a younger mistress. Why would anybody ever act like such an idiot? Why would anybody ever act so juvenile? Why would somebody throw it all away? for just a sports car, for just a little fling. Monty suggests that this is but another futile attempt to try to turn back time. Maybe to try to, to look a little bit younger, to feel young again. Uh, I ended up riding around with Steve and, and one of his sons yesterday, and we rode around in a Tesla. And I was like, oh, this must be what it's like to feel cool for once. Maybe to feel young. <laughs> and... Uh, much different than riding in kind of my, my soccer mobile. Uh, let me ask how many millions of dollars are spent on plastic surgery here in the West, and why? How many holidays are spent whose sole purpose is to surround ourselves with more toys and mindless entertainment? How much of our discretionary income is simply wasted on that? I'm not saying that entertainment is a bad thing. But I think we should ask why. Why is when we look at our checking account so much devoted to spending so much on entertainment? Why is our present society obsessed with youth culture? Why push the elderly so much to the sidelines? Trying to shove everybody off into nursing homes. Yeah, I've, I've um, 
a church back home in Florida a number of years ago. Uh, decided to revamp its image. Change its name from just a, your, your standard name, you know, fill in the blank Presbyterian church. And all of a sudden, in the course of a few months, the, um, the pastor decided to grow out his hair super long and uh, uh, relocated the church to a movie theater, used all the church's savings to hire a, a band and, and changed the name to, uh, to iChurch uh, as, as an attempt to look younger and, and more accessible to, to, to the young people. What happened? Well, all the old people ended up leaving, went to churches that actually they felt like uh, were actually getting real pastoral care. Why is it that we do everything, that we think that, that the way to be successful is to marginalize the elderly? Perhaps, do you think this is all done to distract us from that unshakable fact that we are all one day, one day going to die, and we don't want anything to remind us of that fact? Right? We fear death. So we do everything we can to escape death. And it manifests itself in so many ways, I think so many ways that we haven't even given consideration. Might I suggest it's not religion that is the opiate of the masses. But perhaps it's the mindless entertainment that consumes our entire life. Again, I'm not saying that all entertainment is bad. That's not my point. But the question we have to ask as we evaluate its role in our life is... How central is it, and why is it so central? See, the fear of death drives so much of how we suppress the moral law. Here, Hebrews is talking about that fear of death being the the chains of our enslavement. It manifests the way in which we rebel against our Maker. Ways in which we find ourselves shackled to these very expressions. Right? We fear death because deep down we know what awaits, the final judgment. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. They're like a boy at the beach with a beach ball trying to suppress the truth, pushing that beach ball under the ocean. What do we do when we let go? It keeps popping up. So what do we do is we push down even harder and harder and harder and harder, doing everything we can to create this illusion that we will live forever. Because we don't want to face the reality that we will have to, each and every one of us, stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give account for all that has been done in the body. But if Christ reigns, as Hebrews asserts as its central premise, then at his death, we find that Christ has triumphed over death particularly by his resurrection from the dead, that at the cross, Christ bore that death sentence due us so that we would not have to fear the final judgment because he bore the judgment in our place that by his resurrection from the dead, he has come to deliver us not only from from death, but also from the fear of death. And with it, I would like to suggest the myriad of ways in which the fear of death manifests itself in our lives. So what we see here is that Christ has not only come to deliver us from the fear of death, but he's also come to welcome us as friends as he comes to bring aid to his brothers and sisters, as he's come to share and partake in flesh and in blood. You see this where Christ is known and described as the helper in verse 16, as it says, for surely it is not the angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. I want you to notice the contrast between the two races here in this passage. Christ has not come to help the angels. See, the, uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews has focused on that simple question, why did God the Son become man? 
And here he's bringing out a very important point that Christ did not take to himself an angelic nature to help the angels who rebelled against its maker. You think of 2 Peter chapter 2. God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the final judgment. When the angels rebelled against God, whenever that took place, did the Son of God take to Himself an angelic nature to initiate a means of their deliverance? Did Christ come to deliver the demons from their sin? Of course, we say, of course not. But what we find is that there's an entire created race that has rebelled against God, that God did not institute a means of redemption. But Christ has come to help Adam's fallen race by taking on the form of a servant by taking to himself flesh and blood. Christ has identified with the human race in every way. In such a way that Christ does not identify with any other of his creation. So when we speak of the condescension of God towards sinners, we need to recognize that we, being most unworthy to be the recipients of God's grace, received it in a very special way, wherein the Son of God became man, and will so continue to be man, both God and man, forever, throughout the end, to the very end of time. Of course, the word help here is such a weak word. You think of the ways in which we use help. uh, Mom, help me with my homework. Honey, can you help take out the trash? Kiddo, it's, it's time to help with the dishes. The word here is a much stronger word. It's a word that means to lay hold of or to seize. You see it in Luke chapter 20, for instance, when it says that the, the Pharisees uh, uh, lay in wait to seize, to help Christ. Clearly, they're not coming to help Jesus out. They're the bad guys, right? They have come to lay hold of Christ. That's the strength of the word. Mark chapter 14 maybe gives us a better context. Peter, when he's drowning in the sea, calls out to Christ for help. It says that Christ comes and he lays hold of, he helps Peter. This is, in fact, the language of the Exodus. You read it in Jeremiah chapter 31 and uh, echoed again in Hebrews chapter 8 where the Lord says, I have laid my hands on them. I have helped them, using the same word here in the Greek, and I have brought them out of Egypt. It's the language of the psalmist where it says that God has seized me and brought me up from the miry depths. He has pulled me up from the watery grave. And Christ has not come to lay hold of the angels and to offer assistance to them. But he has come to lay hold of Abraham's offspring. And as the Bible tells us elsewhere, Abraham's offspring has reference not to the physical descendants of Abraham, but those who share in the faith of Abraham. That's Romans chapter 4, verse 16, that Christ has stooped to save all who call and turn to Him in repentance and faith. And so we ask ourselves, how do you struggle with the fear of death? In what ways? Something I'd like you to consider throughout the week. Of course, the response is not, you know, I've been afraid, now I just need to be brash and not give any concern. Let's throw all caution to the wind. That's, That's not the point. The point is simply one of evaluation. 
What's our greatest fear? Is it a reflection of the fact that we might fear death? And how has Christ come to comfort us even in the midst of these realities as we await the resurrection of the dead? See, this passage calls us to evaluate our fears in light of the cross. Some fears are, in fact, quite healthy. It is what the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. So there's still a place for a proper fear or reverence in the Christian life, but here it's dealing with those irrational fears, that fear of death, and to remind you that Christ has come to deliver you not only from death, but also from the fear of it. And it's my job as a minister of the gospel to prepare you for death. It's probably the last thing that you came wanting to hear about this morning is to be reminded of your own mortality. Probably the worst candidating sermon in the history of the human race, right? I should have done something a little bit happier. But, you you know, you're going to pay for what you get. And my job here is to prepare you for the most important thing you'll ever have to face. Are you ready to stand before the judgment seat? If you claim Christ as your Redeemer. But not only that, have you come to see that Christ has come to comfort you in the midst of sorrow, even now? This is better news than any of us have ever known. The Christ has come to bring comfort to frightened friends. But the very news that he has conquered death. Because Christ reigns. And so we do not need to fear death any longer. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the comfort Christ has come to give. That Christ indeed reigns and he is making his enemies a footstool even now. We ask that though we do not see the reality of your son's reign, we ask that you would give us the eyes of faith that we might confess and not abandon this confession of the kingship of Christ, and that you might comfort us as we look forward to the day when death itself will be undone at the return of our Savior, the great and last day when we will be raised to new life and bodies indestructible. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.